A big night. Analysis of the latest round of Democratic primaries as Joe Biden wins four states and takes a major step towards being the party's nominee for president. Battle plan. The Trump administration debates measures to help combat the coronavirus outbreak in the United States. We're at the White House. Vatican reform. A look at the new office that may be coming to the Holy See. And a thirst for good. Pope Francis has a message for those who think they could never be loved by God. On EWTN News Nightly for Wednesday, March 11, 2020. And thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Tracy Sable. It was another big night for Joe Biden in the Democratic presidential primary. The former vice president added wins in four more states, including the key battleground state of Michigan. Biden's mini Super Tuesday victory in Michigan, in addition to wins in Missouri, Mississippi and Idaho, substantially widens his path to the nomination. Yesterday is being seen as a serious blow to the candidacy of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. But Sanders says he is staying in the race. Sanders won North Dakota. Washington state is still too close to call. In the delegate count for the nomination, Joe Biden has 860 delegates. Bernie Sanders has 710. The only other candidate in the race is Tulsi Gabbard, and she has two delegates. A candidate must claim at least 1,991 delegates to clinch the nomination. Philip Crowther, international affiliate reporter for the Associated Press, joins us now. Philip, good to see you. So Joe Biden's momentum continues to grow with the victory there in Michigan. What do you think helped him win? Well, you used the uh, most important word there, momentum. That is what uh, Joe Biden, the former vice president, has had on his side for two weeks now, and he carries it on into the next contests uh, next Tuesday already when the likes of Ohio, Illinois, and Florida will be going to the polls. Why has he got that momentum? Well, first of all, because he came out of South Carolina with that emphatic victory. That then translated into a, a whole slew of victories uh, on Super Tuesday, and that has continued on to here, to Michigan, with a, a pretty handsome victory for Joe Biden here. And, of course, uh, he can come out of this last Tuesday with four victories out of six altogether. Remember also, when it comes to momentum, Joe Biden has so much support from former Democratic candidates on his side. Uh, he Just the night before the primary here in Michigan, he had on stage here in Detroit with him the likes of Senator Cory Booker and Senator Kamala Harris, who just a few months ago were on the debate stage with him, debating him. They are now in Joe Biden's uh, camp. So you could really see uh, that strength that uh, the former vice president has right now, and it's translating into votes. Uh, four years ago, Michigan helped to propel Bernie Sanders' candidacy. What happened this time around? Yeah, well, it didn't really work out uh, for Bernie Sanders this time around. He had a very, very close win exactly four years ago against former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And, of course, she then went on to become the nominee and then lost to Donald Trump here, also surprisingly, in Michigan uh, in the 2016 election. Now, what Bernie Sanders essentially didn't manage to do here is build on the support he already had here four years ago. Yes, young voters are on his side, but he didn't manage to get that many more in his camp this time around. 
around here in Michigan. And he lost more than anything in those crucial demographics here in Michigan and all across the Midwest and in parts all across the United States. He's not getting African-American voters on his side. They are with the former Vice President Joe Biden in very large percentages. And also uh, blue-collar workers who are so impor important, of course, to win a primary election here in Michigan, they largely sided with Joe Biden as well. If you don't have those two groups on your side, you can't come away from Michigan and you can't come away from so many other U.S. states with victories. Uh, Sanders didn't speak last night. What do we know what's next for his campaign? Yeah, well, he's saying that he's uh, taking things one event at a time. Now, that's more than anything because his event in Cleveland in Ohio, again, that is one of the states that will be voting next week, was postponed because of the coronavirus outbreak. We tend to hear from Bernie Sanders on election nights, but this time around, this Tuesday, there really wasn't much for him to discuss. He won the caucuses in North Dakota, and that was pretty much it. He really was working hard on trying to win Michigan again as he did four years ago, and uh, it was a pretty big defeat for him here. So I think chances are more than anything, Bernie Sanders simply didn't feel like talking about what was a pretty bad night for him in this election cycle. Well, Philip, speaking of the coronavirus, um, how are the concerns of the virus affecting the campaign trail, and what changes are the candidates making? Well, we have on our schedules right now not a single event by either Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. No rallies organized and no chances really for them to meet voters. This is a, an election cycle that for the next few weeks most likely is going to be seen on TV with campaign adverts and maybe TV interviews rather than actually by seeing contact with voters. One first, side, uh, one first sign of that will be this Sunday. The uh, Democratic debate in Phoenix in Arizona is going to happen. The two candidates are going to be there, but there's not going to be a live audience. That's going to be a first sign of things to come with the administration saying clearly that the virus outbreak is getting, getting worse at this point. Well, Philip, thank you so much for your analysis. Philip Crowther, international affiliate reporter for the Associated Press. Thanks again. Thank you. My pleasure. Arkan County, Michigan, on the west side of the state, has been called by some as one of the top counties to watch in this presidential race. Correspondent Mark Irons is there talking to voters. Tracy, Bernie Sanders was not able to replicate the success he had in Kent County during the 2016 primary. Now, I spoke with people in the county seat here in Grand Rapids. It's a historic political town, and today they're saying they're already gearing up for a Trump versus Biden matchup. Just over a week ago, many of the pundits declared that uh, this candidacy was dead. Now we're very much alive. Joe Biden is edging closer to taking on President Trump in November after a decisive win in Michigan's Democratic presidential primary. Here in Kent County, Michigan, voter turnout was higher than in the 2016 primary and Grand Rapids saw more people go to the polls. There's no question people in Grand Rapids are engaged politically, and there is presidential history here. The 38th president of the U.S., Gerald Ford, grew up in the city, and he's buried on the grounds of his presidential library right here. A few miles from the Gerald R. Ford Library and Museum, we found Sandy's, where the political opinions were as different as the donuts. Kenneth Renzema told us why he's supporting President Trump. Abortion is a big one. Second Amendment is a big one. Um, even religious freedom under the, under the First Amendment is a big one for me. One table over, we met Norman Tubbs, who's backing Joe Biden. I think he shows great empathy. He, he shows genuineness. He's experienced. 
Across from Tubbs at this breakfast table of retirees, Laurie Gummery, an undecided voter. She did not cast a ballot yesterday. Which is unusual for me. I just having a real hard time. I'm struggling with it. The way Michigan ultimately decides could play a major role in determining who wins the White House in November. In this battleground state, we also heard from the shepherd of Grand Rapids Catholic flock. What is your message to Catholics who will be voting? Bishop David Wolkowiak of Grand Rapids has a couple of suggestions for making an informed decision. Review the church catechism to better understand Catholic teaching on the issues and read the platforms of each political party. He says your vote affects others. You know, as we learn in the Gospels, our neighbor is anyone who is in need. And so we have to keep that in mind. We have to uh, be able to, to want the best for everybody and to vote in uh, people and vote for issues that will accomplish those goals. Tracy, the bishop there reminding Catholics that their voting should influence the common good of society. Now you can guarantee that presidential candidates will be focused on campaigning here in the Mitten State as they try to win over voters' support. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, Mark Irons, EWTN News Nightly. A federal court heard arguments today regarding Ohio's ban on abortion for babies with a diagnosis of Down syndrome. The case is considered a pivotal one in the national debate over abortion. Pro-lifers say the measure does not create a substantial obstacle to women obtaining an abortion. Abortion supporters say the law prevents women from speaking freely with their doctors. The World Health Organization is now declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic in the U.S. Coronavirus cases now stand at more than 1,000, and so far there have been 32 deaths. People in at least 38 states, including the District of Columbia, have tested positive for the virus. Michigan was the latest state to announce its first presumptive positive case. President Donald Trump addresses the nation tonight about the coronavirus, and he's considering a national disaster declaration and new travel advisories. He also spoke with the banking industry earlier today. All this as the White House urges people to get educated about the disease. Correspondent Owen Jensen begins our team coverage tonight. Owen? That's right, Tracy, here at the White House, a Surgeon General urging Americans to learn as much as they can about this virus to better protect themselves. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization making this big announcement. Expressing alarm over mounting infections and inadequate government responses, the World Health Organization says the global coronavirus crisis is now a pandemic, but added that it's not too late for countries to act. We're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. As states race to contain the coronavirus, last night in the White House briefing room, the Surgeon General with this warning. Unfortunately, we are likely to see more deaths. We have not hit the peak of this epidemic quite yet. Vast areas of U.S. life are being impacted, including bans on large public gatherings to try to limit contact with those who are infected. New York's governor says schools and other gathering places will be shut down for two weeks in a containment zone in New Rochelle, a suburb of New York City. The area accounts for the majority of the state's 173 coronavirus cases. And who's most at risk? If you are immunocompromised, if you have chronic medical conditions, if you are over the age of 60, you are at higher risk. If you are a child or young adult, you are less likely to be impacted by the coronavirus. The vast majority of those infected recover from the new virus. But as the battle rages, so does the push to educate people to protect themselves and their families. If we follow this prescription, we will 
we will overcome the coronavirus. You can go to coronavirus.gov to learn more. A few other notes right now. The stock market really took a hit today, and more and more universities are holding classes only online. Tracy? Thank you, Owen. Correspondent Owen Jensen reporting from the White House tonight. Well, so far, Democrats are giving a cold response to President Trump's coronavirus response plans. And some lawmakers from the president's own party say it is too soon to consider fresh spending from Capitol Hill. Correspondent Eric Rosales reports now from Capitol Hill. Eric. Well, Tracy, health experts testifying on Capitol Hill today say that this is a very serious problem and steps must be taken in order to contain it. Meanwhile, lawmakers on both sides, they continue with the political mudslinging. Each side is criticizing the other for politicizing this health threat. Democratic senators outline their plan to alleviate the effects of the coronavirus outbreak. They say relief needs to be targeted at people, not big corporations. It's about helping people, people who are hurting and helping them quickly. Their three-part proposals call for lost wages, paid sick leave for those affected by the virus, small business relief, and protection for housing, food security, and education. I pressed the minority leader for a timetable. How are you going to get this passed in a reasonable time? It'll probably be divided into two parts. One, immediate direct relief to people who are suffering, and second, some economic help to people who are suffering that helps the economy in the longer run. In the House, Republican Jim Jordan cautioned his colleagues about politicizing official coronavirus response. We don't always see eye to eye on matters of oversight, but on this issue, I think we should all work together for the health and well-being of every American. We should not play politics with the coronavirus. The Government Accountability Office warns the House Oversight Committee there needs to be follow-through. Often, um, the after-action reviews are conducted really well, and then once uh, the outbreak is stopped or the disaster is over, uh, there's no follow-up on the gaps that are identified. And a warning. Is the, is the worst yet to come, Dr. Fauci? Yes, it is. We will see more cases and things will get worse than they are right now. And those health officials told lawmakers two things need to take place. First, we need to keep infected people out of the country with better screening. And then we need to have better screening for those that are in the country that are dealing with this virus. I did press Democratic senators on how we're going to pay for all this coronavirus proposals. They have yet to get back to me on a number. Tracy. Correspondent Eric Rosales reporting from Capitol Hill tonight. Thank you, Eric. And coming up later in the show, we hear how one Catholic organization is helping to protect the elderly from coronavirus. Former Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein is sentenced to 23 years in prison. Lawyers for his victims applaud the judge's decision. Two of Weinstein's accusers confronted him again in a Manhattan courtroom today. The 67-year-old broke his silence to say he felt, quote, remorse for the situation. But he also argued that men are being accused of things that none of us understood. Coming up, new developments in the effort to end the war in Afghanistan and an update on the Holy Father's attempt to reform the Vatican. Negotiations towards ending the war in Afghanistan are a step closer after Afghanistan's president says that he will release 1,500 Taliban prisoners. Azo sobat, doshta bushan badan sawalay shumara migirim. Sidi kisay mehrabani. 
A presidential spokesman says the release will take place by the end of the week, but he adds the releases will stop if the Taliban resumes violence in the country. A recent peace deal between the United States and the Taliban called for the release of up to 5,000 prisoners ahead of the much-anticipated negotiations. Turkey's president says that he wants to turn a temporary ceasefire in Syria into something more permanent, but he also says that he is ready to retaliate if there are any violations to the truce. Workers have begun clearing a highway in Syria that was last opened in 2012. It will serve as a security corridor during the ceasefire. The recent truce was agreed on by Ankara and Russia, who support opposite sides in the conflict. The pact ended a three-month military campaign that sent one million people fleeing towards Turkey. The Russian parliament overwhelmingly approves a change to the Constitution. That change would allow President Vladimir Putin to run for president two more times after his current term ends in 2024. Putin has ruled the country for more than 20 years, first as prime minister. The proposal heads to a public vote next month. A Catholic cardinal in Sri Lanka says there are many unanswered questions regarding the deadly bombings on Easter Sunday last year. Cardinal Malcolm Ranjith is threatening to lead public protests if the government fails to produce a credible report on the attacks. St. Sebastian Church, north of the capital of Colombo, was one of two Catholic churches targeted in the strikes. 259 people were killed and more than 500 others were injured. An Islamic group is believed to have been responsible for the suicide bombings. The Vatican proposes a new human resources department within the Secretariat of State. The establishment of the office, which will be called the General Directorate for Personnel, was announced last week. The Vatican says that it is not officially created until Pope Francis issues a decree forming the new office. Andrea Galliaducci, Vatican analyst for EWTN News, joins us now from Rome. Thank you so much for being with us, Andrea. So what is the reason for this office and how will it help to reform the Vatican? Well, you know, the reason for the curia reform in general was a better harmonization about, um, among the organization of many departments, many offices. The Secretary of State already had an office for the personnel of staff office within the first section, that is the section for general affairs. Now, this new office that is going to be supposedly to be established is an office that will oversee not just the administration of the Holy See and of the Vatican per se, but also all the related administration, which includes the Institute for Religious Works, the so-called Vatican Bank, uh, but also the fabrics that are this organization around the cathedrals in order to keep the cathedral works and renovation ongoing, and other related organization. It's a way to have a centralized organization within the Holy See that is not scattered in many departments as it was before. Do you know why the statement was released if the decision had not been made yet? Well, this is kind of a sort of mystery, but I guess that the reform is ongoing, and so there are still discussions ongoing. Obviously, when the release was issued, when the release was uh, uh, delivered, uh, it was obvious that there was an approval. It was obvious that uh, the Secretary of State knew that because nothing passes through the Holy See Press Office without the consent of the Secretary of State. Likely, Pope Francis was spun of some new issues, some other issues that he wanted to think about, and that's why they had this sort of setback. They said, let's wait, the Pope will issue a motu proprio. Actually, a motu proprio, that is a papal document, a spontaneous papal document, will not be needed for this kind of office, because it's just an announcement of a previous office that was already set in the Secretary of State. But perhaps the Pope wants to 
ponder things better. Are there any concerns in this possible new office? Well, there are concerns, obviously, because it's a new way of thinking. There are uh, organizations, there are entities within the Holy See, like the Institute for Religious Works, that have their way of hiring people, administering people. Uh, the IOR issued recently, in August 2019, new statutes. In the new statutes, it was clear that the IOR was going, was going to uh, hire people according to the IOR regulations, which are different from the general Curia regulations. This new office will set, will put every office, every entity related to the Vatican under the Curia uh, general regulation which makes all the difference. You know, it's different salary, different treatment, different, different everything. Obviously, the entities have their concerns because they want to keep their independence. Obviously, the Curia reform is going to harmonize everything. So at one point, they will have to find a compromise. Andrea, do you have any idea when this office will become official? We don't have an idea for the main reason that we don't know when the reform is going to end. There is actually uh, a draft that is called the Predicate Evangelium, let's preach the gospel, but this draft is still under discussion. Uh, we may think that the draft will be ended, will be not ended, released uh, by the end of June, but it, this is just a guess because the, the discussion is still ongoing. Uh, likely the Pope will do that when he's ready, because many of these reforms are already effective because the Pope did them without the draft, so before any draft was released. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Andrea Galliaducci, Vatican Analyst for EWTN News. Thank you. Up next, Pope Francis tells the faithful how the devil will try to persecute them. And how a Catholic group is helping in the fight to protect the elderly from coronavirus. E oggi, in modo speciale, vorrei pregare per i carcerati. Pope Francis says he is praying in a special way for those in prison. At his morning mass today, the Holy Father added the devil tempts us in two ways, seduction of worldly things and destruction of the person. Pope Francis says every human being has a thirst for God. Ma c'è sempre la sette della verità e del bene. The Holy Father says those longing for the Lord includes people who think their sins mean God will never love them. He also says Christ is the water that brings life to the dust of humanity. Pope Francis held his weekly talk with pilgrims at the Vatican over the Internet due to precautions from the coronavirus outbreak. As we've mentioned, the coronavirus is now a global pandemic striking the elderly particularly hard. For charitable organizations who serve this vulnerable population, it is vital to maintain that support without interruption. Joining me now by Skype is Aileen McShay Tinney. She is the Division Director of Senior Services for Catholic Charities of Baltimore. Aileen, welcome to the show. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me and for covering this topic. Well, Aileen, the coronavirus has changed daily life for a lot of us. Tell us how it's impacted your organization and the services that you provide. Well, we have 2,000 older adults living with us, either in skilled nursing, assisted living, or in apartment communities. And then we serve other older adults who come in to, um, for services or who we reach at home. And so it's been a lot, really mostly education and communication, keeping people from panicking, but also making sure there's not a complacency because we all need to step up and make sure we're doing what we need to do 
and make sure people aren't isolated. Yeah, absolutely. What's your advice to the elderly people that you serve? That they should, I mean, the CDC is saying stay home as much as possible. And so for the rest of us, we have to look around us and see who those people are that probably need a little help in order to be able to stay home. So access to food and supplies that they may need your help um, to be able to stay home alone for some time. Yeah, we and then technology is helpful just to communicate so that they're not socially isolated. Yeah, and Aileen, I know that uh, you're restricting volunteers to cut down on the risk, um, but how else can we help as Catholics? Well, um, one thing that's wonderful about St. Elizabeth's Nursing Center is it, it has a beautiful chapel, and it's really a place that people come from, the assisted living in the apartments, and families come from the outside. And we did have to stem that traffic a little bit, and we will have to stem it more. But the pastoral care department here at St. Elizabeth's is going out to the other locations, and we're using technology to bring in services to folks. And any of us that have time can use the telephone, this you know, simple technology to be connecting with one another um, and just calm fears because the, the to-do is to um, isolate and we need to be with people through that and make sure they have what they need to do that. And then the skilled setting has a whole other set of, you know, work that we're doing to make sure people are well. But it, we're, we're doing okay so far. We really appreciate the support and getting the word out. Absolutely, Aileen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for what you do. Aileen McShay, Tinney, Division Director of Senior Services for Catholic Charities of Baltimore. Thank you so much. And we thank you for watching tonight. For the entire EWTN News Nightly team, I'm Tracy Sable. We're back tomorrow with more news from a Catholic perspective. Good night and God bless.